welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. This is a really exciting time at the Department of Energy. And as you all know, we're in this historic magic moment around climate action. I call it the perfect storm for climate action because for decades, environmentalists and climate activists have been working hard to have our Congress and our government really take bold action to address this issue. Hey everyone, we've all seen the headlines about the historic climate laws that were passed last year. But what's happening behind the scenes now to help communities actually access federal funding and invest in the climate transition? The Department of Energy plays a key role in the rollouts of climate funding and policies, and so I was thrilled to get to chat with Chris Castro. Chris is the Chief of Staff of the Office of State and Community Energy Programs at the U.S. Department of Energy. Chris brings entrepreneurial instincts and experience, along with clear passion to his role. We talk about Chris's journey, about the implementation of policies you've heard of, like the IRA, as well as dozens of lesser-known initiatives managed by the DOE that are helping communities across the country decarbonize. There's lots to learn in this one. Enjoy. Chris Castro, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I imagine that you are in the nation's capital right now and probably cherry blossom season. How are things in D.C.? It's beautiful out in D.C. I'm new here as a D.C. resident, and so I've been very much embracing the weather changes. I'm coming from Florida, so we often say we, we have two seasons, hot and hotter. But I'm actually getting to witness a fall and a bit of a winter, although it was light and and yeah, the last couple of days with the cherry blossoms and all of the spring flowers coming out is just gorgeous in the city. Well, fantastic. Also a season for a lot of climate action, which is what we're here to talk about. Chris, you are the chief of staff of the Office of State and Community Energy Programs at the U.S. Department of Energy. Let's get to know you for a moment before we dive into your current role. You've been working in environmental advocacy and policymaking for over 15 years. Tell us about that journey how it started for you, and the different roles you've played before being appointed by President Biden. It's been quite a journey for me. I'm a second-generation Cuban-American. I was born and raised down in Miami, Florida, raised by my mom and grandparents. And eventually, my mom uh, ended up marrying my stepdad, who is an entrepreneur. He owns a palm tree business down in South Florida. And growing up, I very much got an intimate experience in the natural world. I ended up going up to Orlando, Florida to study at the University of Central Florida there. Interestingly enough, I was undeclared in my first year and I was trying to figure out where I wanted to put my talents to work. And I ended up stumbling in a course around environmental science and policy. 
and Dr. Penelope Canan, who's still to this day an incredible mentor and somebody who I look up to, really opened my eyes to the opportunity of what we could do to address the climate crisis and advance a more equitable and sustainable future. And I got so inspired, I ended up creating a campaign on my campus that mobilized students on putting pressure to the university president and the board of trustees to commit to carbon neutrality and a net zero future at the university by 2040. And then shortly thereafter, founded a nonprofit organization called Ideas for Us. The whole concept of Ideas for Us was to bring together an interdisciplinary group of students that were on our campus and working to create solutions to these problems, not necessarily just be advocating for them or implementing civil disobedience, so to speak. But it was very much focused on how do we solve these problems? How do we get hands-on experiential learning for students so that they can be inspired to get into this movement? And we started everything from on-campus recycling programs to installing solar to creating the campus garden. We kind of became the sustainability firm on campus. And over time, that organization has grown tremendously to over 30 countries around the world. It's become a UN-accredited NGO and is now scaling these solutions to advance sustainable development all around the world. So it's been fascinating to see that from the inception to where it is today. Of course, I continue to get really interested in other aspects of clean energy and also during my undergrad two-year work study at the Department of Energy that was really focused on how do we begin to look at our built environment and begin to retrofit the built environment to address the climate crisis. We know that buildings consume 40% of total energy, about 75% of electricity consumption, and they contribute a significant amount to the carbon emissions of this country, over 30%. And we're also seeing that in cities and urban settlements, they can be as high as three-fourths of the emissions profile. So buildings were a key focus. I started to get experience in the building technologies space and ended up starting a company shortly after graduating called Citizen Energy that basically is a boutique clean energy consulting firm helping commercial and and apartment buildings and and other space types to retrofit them and bring about clean energy technologies. This started out in Orlando. It now operates in the D.C. metro and in parts of California and is doing everything from installing renewables on buildings to retrofitting lighting, putting building automation and controls, installing EV charging and other things. And as I was doing that work as the CEO, I ended up getting contacted by Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer. And this was back in 2013 when they had landed a grant called the City Energy Project that was focused on developing Orlando's clean energy strategy. And so I decided after long and hard thinking of what to do, took a back seat in the company and my organizations and and decided to go all in on applying this entrepreneurial skill set into government applying my passion into advancing sustainability from a municipal level. And of course, Orlando, one of the fastest growing communities in the country, the most visited destination in America, I felt that if I could solve it there, that it could be a replicable model for other communities across the country to think about the policies, the programs, the partnerships that it would take to drive forward that type of future. And so I was there over the last eight and a half years doing the implementation on the ground, working with our utility to deploy renewables and efficiency programs, working with the transit agency to roll out e-buses, and of course, our communities to expand all types of clean energy solutions from rooftop solar to driving weatherization to to expanding a bunch of charging infrastructure and, and getting ready for clean transportation, just to name a few. So it's been an amazing journey. And of course, last summer in July, 
ended up being contacted by the White House Office of Presidential Personnel with was an amazing opportunity, something that I did not pursue, but, but certainly when it came to me, was undeniably the next step for me to come up here to Washington, D.C. And the pitch was to help create a new office at the Department of Energy that centered states, tribes, city, counties, and, and other communities in this transition to a clean energy future. Incredible. What a story. And clearly, you bring a range of experience from building nonprofits to being an entrepreneur and starting a company and then working in government. And I should note, you're not the first podcast guest here to have been originally inspired by a teacher. So for all you teachers out there, keep talking about climate and environmental action because this is what it leads to. Chris, let's turn now to your current role, Chief of Staff of the Office of State and Community Energy Programs. Tell us about that role and what you're trying to accomplish. This is a really exciting time at the Department of Energy. And as you all know, we're in this historic magic moment around climate action. I call it the perfect storm for climate action because for decades, environmentalists and climate activists have been working hard to have our Congress and our government really take bold action to address this issue. And over the last year and a half, Congress has delivered, right? Back in Late 2021, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or the IIJA, was passed, and it kicked off this momentum towards our focus on clean energy. In addition to the bill, we also had the Chips and Science Act that was passed, and of course, the Inflation Reduction Act. And basically, all three of these bills have created an influx of hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy to drive forward climate and clean energy investments. Often, Secretary Granholm talks about these three in a creative way. She talks about the bipartisan infrastructure law as kind of the backbone of the clean energy economy that's investing in our infrastructure and investing in our workers. We have the Chips and Science Act, which is kind of the brain of the clean energy future, and it's really investing in our supply chains, in our manufacturing, in our universities and national labs to continue to innovate towards these emerging technologies like hydrogen and long-duration storage and others, right? And then we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really an investment in our households. It's unlocking billions of dollars in tax credits in rebates and creating kind of market signals that clean energy is an inevitable transition and there's really nothing that can hold it back. Now, this infusion of capital really fundamentally changed the mission of the Department of Energy. Secretary Granholm often says that DOE has been a research and development agency at its core for the last 45 plus years. Right? We have these 17 national labs. We're investing in these clean technologies so that we can get them to a commercial scale and have the market really uptake them. And now this fund, about $100 billion, has come to the Department of Energy with a new mission. And that mission is equitable deployment. It's no longer around, let's continue to research and develop. This money is actually to take the proven technologies and scale them. And so that really had us think about how DOE was organized and the importance around realigning DOE's skill sets so that we can be more effective and efficient and impactful at deploying that dollar. Part of that realignment was creating a new undersecretary of infrastructure. This is a whole new pillar at the Department of Energy that has eight program offices under it that are focused on this deployment mission, right? One of the new offices is the grid deployment office. It's a whole new focus on the electric grid and the need for us to not just expand it, modernize it, make it more resilient and reliable, especially as we start adding electric vehicles and other distributed energy resources onto the grid, right? We also have a manufacturing and energy supply chains office. We call it MESC. This is really focused on onshoring our manufacturing and our supply chains and boosting 
kind of the manufacturing workforce here in the United States, helping us to control our own destiny and be less dependent on some of our foreign partners to meet these clean energy demands. And then we have this Office of State and Community Energy Programs, this SCEP office, which is really the tip of the spear for us to interact with states, tribes, city and county governments, and other community-serving institutions. This office manages $16 billion worth of these funding, both formula and competitive grants. And we also have this mission around technical assistance and support, helping communities meet them where they are and navigate these resources so that they can be most effective at absorbing these opportunities and really catalyzing their local economic development, local job creation, addressing legacy pollution, reducing costs for households, and at the end of the day, delivering on the President's Justice 40 initiative, where 40% of the benefits flow to our historically disadvantaged communities. So now we have an office at DOE whose mission is solely focused on deploying these resources in an equitable way, and in fact, reaching out all 50 states, five territories, over 744 tribal governments, over 2,000 city and county governments, And those are just the formula grants that we know are already committed. We know that there are going to be thousands of other stakeholders that are going to benefit from these resources on the competitive side as well. So it's a really exciting time with the evolution that's going on in it. And it feels like we're starting another company that's fully funded, half-staffed at this point, but has an incredible runway in terms of its ability to impact the American public and to catalyze this transition of our economy towards one that was fossil-based towards now one that's going to be focused on clean energy. Well, so much there to dive into. Thanks for sharing that. And I've never heard how you explained that the trifecta of policies, the CHIPS, the Infrastructure and Inflation Reduction Act, but I thought that was a really clear and helpful way to explain how those three really attack different parts of the system. Also, I love hearing about how the DOE itself is really undergoing an upgrade in terms of its own organizational structure and its own infrastructure. And for anyone who questions the importance of elections, just imagine all of this work being undone or the chance for it to be more deeply rooted into our energy future. So thank you for that. And I just need to ask, you're now part of an administration that will go down in history as one of the most ambitious presidencies to date when it comes to climate action and perhaps one of the most successful. What does that feel like? The feeling that I have is a feeling of joy as well as a kind of a mix of concern because this is a moment that we need to deliver on. And if we don't, we don't know if we're going to get another bite at the apple the way that we have now. These, the trifecta of the laws, the focus of our president and our vice president um, with climate being at the highest level, right? The marketplace at this point in time prepared, the workforce who has been trained. I think that we're at a, a really important time and it, it feels incredible to come into the office every day. This, the energy that we have here, pun intended, Um, is infectious and people are excited. We're also working around the clock because we know that there isn't enough time in the day to get these resources out as quick as we can. And so I will say that the feeling, it's hard to describe it, but it's an incredible feeling, mix of joy, but also this kind of real concern that if we don't get this right, we could set ourselves back for decades and, and really even centuries to come. Chris, let's dive into the policies and your role in helping roll them out. Let's start with the big ones, the CHIPS and Science Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the IRA. Three monumental accomplishments last year. How are you and your department involved in rolling them out? 
I mentioned at DOE, we've received about $100 billion of the funding from these laws here at the Department of Energy. And across the U.S. government, there's close to $500 billion of climate and clean energy funding. I've been impressed at how many resources USDA has and HUD and HHS, DOI, EPA, of course, as it relates to this climate and clean energy transition. So this is truly a kind of a whole government approach to addressing the climate crisis. And that's not just kind of lip service. It is happening. Now, here at SCEP, I mentioned we manage about $16 billion worth of funding. Those are really funds from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. We also have base programs as well that have really been the anchors for DOE's place-based investments of clean energy. At SCEP, we manage the Weatherization Assistance Program. This is the longest-serving, low-income efficiency program that dates over 45 years. And it's literally funds go through formula funds to all 50 states and gets down to every county government in the country. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Law plus that up by $3.2 billion annually. It's about a $350 million investment. This really plus that up and will take us from about 40,000 households per year being weatherized to over 500,000 households being weatherized through this investment. So it's a huge plus up for the work that we were doing. In addition, we have what's called the State Energy Program. This is also a long-serving formula grant that goes out to all 50 states, five territories, and Washington, D.C. every single year. It's about $66 million from an annual basis, but the bill added $500 million to that. And over the next four years, each state is going to get a plus-up of those dollars. Those funds are relatively flexible for the states. They could be used to sub-grant to local governments. They could be used to invest in administrative buildings or vehicles to start to transition to clean energy. They could be used to support them in new policy design. And so it really is flexible funding for the states to start to ramp up their work. Then the bipartisan infrastructure law also added a number of community-based investments that we're really excited about. And we've created a pillar called Community Energy Programs that includes things like energy efficiency and conservation block grants, The EECBG program is a quite popular one at this point. It's a formula grant that goes to 2,708 different entities, all 50 states, the territories, 1,700 plus cities, 744 plus tribes. I mean, this is a real investment of DOE going into virtually every nook and cranny of the United States. And it's an opportunity for these local governments to also take this funding and very flexibly start to figure out how we can apply it towards a clean climate and clean energy strategy, depending on where they stand, right? It could help them begin to develop a roadmap towards that 100% future. It can invest in actual clean technologies like rooftop solar and battery storage. It could help them transition their fleets towards clean energy or towards clean transportation and electric vehicles. So EECBG is an amazing grant because it really is a stepping stone to help these these grantees think about the additional funds that we know are flowing down into our communities. We also have new funds for public school districts and 501c3 nonprofits. For the first time in history, DOE has grants that are now available to help retrofit our schools and our nonprofit institutions like food banks and homeless shelters and childcare facilities so that they can put more of their money to their mission. And we can use these dollars as a way to lower their operational costs through energy efficiency retrofits. So we're excited about that. And the other big pot of money that came from the bill is workforce development and training. SCEP here manages $260 million of different workforce grants, including energy auditor training programs, 
career skills training programs, helping to create new training centers at our universities to start getting new workforce into the commercial and residential space, as well as our contractors, even funding to help train our mom and prop contractors so that they're not left behind in the transition towards things like heat pump and heat pump water heaters and these technologies that do take new skills to install and to manage. So that's the exciting part. The bipartisan infrastructure law provided $6 billion in SCEP to do everything that I just talked about. So I came in in July, right? A couple months later, in October, the Inflation Reduction Act happens. And we find out that $10 billion of the IRA funding that DOE received will also land in SCEP. And so, of course, that fundamentally changed us from a $6 billion enterprise to a $16 billion enterprise and had us think differently about how we were structured and staffed and how we were going to deploy these resources because the IRA funds are very much targeted towards our households. It's getting into our low and moderate income households and helping them with rebates so that they can offset the upfront cost of these improvements at the point of sale, right? So the IRA came in and these $10 billion include the home energy rebate programs, which we can get into, a billion dollars in building codes and standards to support states and even local governments with code authorities to update their codes to the latest net zero energy or stretch codes and standards. Things like building performance standards is a major one that we're looking towards to address the existing building market. And then of course there is the training dollars that came from the IRA. So all that said is those are the various programs that we're managing here at SCEP. And as you can see, they really touch a wide range of actors from governments to academia, to our public school districts, to our nonprofit organizations, to workforce agencies, and really provides that foundational net of resources to help them get started or continue to catalyze their work towards this clean energy future. Chris, you clearly have expertise on how communities can benefit from these historic policies and hearing about the fact that many of them take the form of block grants or incentive programs or worker training programs. There needs to be action on both sides for communities to actually be able to take advantage of them. I'm curious, how are you thinking about that? What actually needs to happen for these opportunities to really be realized and to be realized equitably? From an equitable standpoint, I think it's important to note that Pretty much every single grant program that we're designing has this lens of Justice 40 as a priority. As an example, the Renew America Schools grant, this is the $500 million that will go to public school districts for retrofits. The beneficiaries of those grants must be schools that are landing in districts that are historically disadvantaged, that have schools that have the highest percentage of free and reduced lunch participants, those that essentially have the greatest energy saving opportunities. So we're trying to focus on the program design to make the selections for the most impactful projects. And we even have a mapping tool, the climate and environmental justice screening tool that was developed by the White House CEQ. This is an incredible resource if you're not aware of it, but it has demystified what it means to deliver Justice 40. So it has identified every parcel, every census tract across the country that is historically disadvantaged so that we know that if a, do a project lands in that jurisdiction, it counts towards Justice 40. We overlaid that map with the schools all across the country and have actually published a map for the school districts so that they can understand where schools are going to be most competitive in going after these dollars, right? So I think from an equity standpoint, the other thing that DOE is doing is incorporating community benefit plans. These are requirements for the applicants to start to think about how do the resources and benefits flow to our communities. 
everything from workforce, how are we encouraging proper labor, as well as salaries and benefits for our workers? How are we ensuring that our community-based organizations are part of the process in developing said project? And ultimately, it is now a requirement and 20% of the merit review process for an application on how your project intends to benefit the local community. This is very unique and it's new to the federal government, but we feel that it is the right intentional approach to ensuring that the resources actually flow to the most underserved, most marginalized, and most disadvantaged communities that we have across the country. Chris, what would you say are the biggest barrier to these laws not creating their intended impact? Well, I'd say the biggest barriers that we're hearing from communities and and states and even tribes is the complexity to navigate everything that's coming down. It's one thing to kind of be on a listserv and start getting the influx of the announcements that are coming out. It's another thing to understand where you are in your journey towards this clean energy future, doing an analysis, and then plugging in these opportunities in a tailored approach. And this is something that we're trying to do with SCEP here. Back in Orlando, before I came up here, I held a federal funding workshop. And I've been encouraging this to the communities that we speak with as a step for them to create this culture of collaboration and partnership within their community, bring together our government, our academic, our major anchor corporations, and even NGO partners into a room. We did a full day workshop. We broke everybody out. Everybody had one slide they brought together, which was the top five climate and equity priorities for your institution, whether it's your transit agency, your airport, your utility, the city, the county, the school district, the universities, you name it, everybody coming together. And all of a sudden, we started to see alignment with projects that we had no idea that the airport was working on that actually benefited our climate action strategy. And then little by little, we broke out into smaller groups. And now we have working groups where we are on a regular basis. They're meeting to identify the best opportunities that plugs into our strategy and helps our community advance. We can't think about these grants as these one-off technology opportunities. This is a whole of community approach. And as you can see with the SCEP funding, it's touching all types of stakeholders and partners. So I think the cities and county governments play a really important convenient role of bringing together our community partners and to begin to analyze what are our priorities within our community, what are the opportunities coming down the pike, and how can we prepare ourselves to be most competitive as they start to open up for funding opportunities. So that's what I would say would be a critical first step it hasn't already taken in the community to start to align yourselves around the bill, the IRA, the CHIPS Act opportunities coming down. Chris, on an earlier episode, I was joined by Rewiring America's CEO, Ari Matusiak, who argued that the IRA ultimately would catalyze much more than the original $100 billion written into law. His argument is that the IRA will spark other investments in decarbonization, electrification, and energy efficiency retrofits. Do you see signs of this happening? We do. We see signs of this happening. And I think a good example of this is the investments that we're seeing in batteries and battery manufacturing, in solar, as well as other supply chain investments that we're seeing across the country. DOE recently published on our website a few different maps of the private sector investments that are happening as a result of the IRA and the bipartisan infrastructure law. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that the private sector has now brought forward because of the market signals that are coming from the tax credits. And of course, a lot of the funding opportunities that are coming from these different grants. 
is very exciting that this is not just a government investment. If we would just invest with just the dollars that Congress has delivered, we would fall very short of our goals towards reducing our emissions 50% by 2030 and certainly getting to the net zero economy wide by 2050. These are the science-based targets we're working towards. And we know for a fact that we can't make it without leveraging these dollars and bringing private capital and other philanthropic capital to the table so that we can support our communities, especially those least resourced and underserved who maybe have never received a federal grant before or have benefited from these types of opportunities. How can we ensure that they're front of the line and we're providing the necessary capacity so that they can not just apply, but absorb the capital once they get selected? It's one thing to be selected for a grant. It's another thing to administer it and implement it. And a lot of that we're trying to think about creatively. How do we work with nonprofit groups that have large branch networks across the country, groups like United Way or AmeriCorps and others to see how they can play a role in this clean energy transition and provide the much needed on the ground boots to support these communities in convening and applying for these grants and navigating the opportunities ahead. Chris, we're talking about the on the ground challenges of the energy transition. Let's get more specific for a moment and talk about home electrification and retrofitting. There are incentives and credits in the area that we've talked about and that will help accelerate progress towards decarbonizing buildings, but it's still a massive undertaking. And that's partially because people typically just don't want to take on retrofitting projects or replace appliances unless something breaks. And I'm really curious about your view on this. You were previously an entrepreneur focused on this space, and now you're at the intersection of communities and incentive programs like the IRA. So what can you tell us about the path to decarbonizing buildings? These home energy rebates are a real game changer, and it's an opportunity to create new business models, quite frankly, for aggregators, for utilities, for whole home service providers. This is a magic moment because these rebates essentially are set up in a really unique way. First and foremost, there's two different rebates. There's one on the home electrification and appliances, and there's one that's on the whole home efficiency side of the house. Both of them have over $4 billion each of resources to drive forward these retrofits. On the electrification and appliances side, the way that Congress structured that in statute is that those resources must flow to low and moderate income communities only. So if you're over 150% AMI, the area median income from your household income, you're only eligible for tax credits. You're not able to get the rebates. But if you're under that 150% AMI and even under 80%, you can get significant benefits. The home electrification allows you to get up to $14,000 in benefits of rebates at the point of sale. And to your point, this is really complex for the administration of it because one, it's based on income and two, it's got to happen at the cash register or the point of sale. To do that, we need to develop tools and systems that make this a seamless experience for our contractors, for our big box stores, and of course, for the end user, for the homeowner and customer. So at DOE, our role is developing guidance for our states and our tribes to properly administer these rebates. These rebates will be administered at the state and tribal government level. They're not national rebate programs. So that's a really important caveat. Secondly is we have just released the first round of funding for the states and tribes to begin to build their capacity, their administrative systems and staff up 
so that they can be prepared to roll out these rebates later this year. Our goal is that the rebates to be made available to the states later this year and for the winter heating season to have rebates available for households to make these retrofits happen. The beautiful thing about the rebates is that they cover a wide range of different technologies. They include things like your heat pump and heat pump water heaters, but also dryers and ranges and stoves, as well as air and duct sealing, other weatherization improvements. The other thing is that it also covers all types of space types. So it's multifamily, it's single family, it's duplexes. You could be a renter or an owner. Really, everybody here is eligible for these types of benefits so long as you meet the income requirements for some of them. In short, I think this is a big deal. And the statute also identifies that the rebates can flow through what they called aggregators, which I feel is the opportunity here for new business models, right? You can imagine that these rebates can flow to an aggregator that ultimately would work with a network of contractors on the ground to administer these rebates and then to process them for those contractors in a more in a seamless way. And we feel that there are a number of potential aggregator stakeholders that we're excited about. Again, utilities, CDFI and green banks, certainly whole home providers and others. And soon guidance will be coming out about aggregators and who might be eligible. But ultimately, the states and the tribes are in the driver's seat to make the decision as to how those programs are going to be administered. And our goal is to make sure that if they're not these piecemealed rebate programs in each state, but there's more of a ubiquitous and standard that people can experience from one state to another. I'm noting that by your mention of new business models, that your entrepreneurial brain has not turned off, but instead you're really leveraging it to think about how to galvanize momentum behind these efforts. Chris, there's a lot that you work on that's lesser known, but still really important. The energy efficiency and conservation block grants, which you've mentioned, the building upgrade prize, the communities to clean energy program, the community solar power accelerator, the weatherization assistance program, state energy programs, community energy programs, school energy upgrade investments. I could keep going, and I honestly don't know if I've mentioned half of what you're doing. Help us, rather than going through this random list, which probably won't help people, just help us understand how you organize your thinking and the buckets that you would place around these different types of programs, just to give folks a sense of the scale as well as just the overall umbrella of efforts. Yeah, as mentioned, that just navigating all of these funds and just in SCEP, we managed 28, over 28 different grant programs. And that's just in one office, right? Across DOE, we're talking about nearly 100 different programs that you could benefit from. It can look like this scattershot, but for us in SCEP, we're trying to think about this again from a whole community approach. So we know we have resources that are flowing through our states and our local governments through that EECBG block grant. And those dollars really are intended to be flexible, clean energy investment opportunities, and also stepping stones to think about the broader funding that can flow into the city and near communities. We have a whole group of funds for academia and public schools, I think, who have quite frankly been left out for a long time. There's over $80 billion in deferred maintenance in schools and universities across this country. The amount of investment that's needed is incredibly huge. For us, $500 million is going to start that process. But as we've been talking about, the real opportunity here is leveraging and allowing energy service performance contracts and other third-party public-private partnership to really scale these dollars. So you have funds for schools, you have funds for workforce agencies and economic development. 
And certainly you have resources that are flowing into our households, and those are the rebates. So we're thinking about this from these big stakeholder groups. And as I mentioned before, I think the cities and counties play a really important role at convening these partners and organizing ourselves around the most critical opportunities based on where we are in this journey towards 100% clean energy. Some communities are way far along, but some communities are literally starting out, scratching their heads saying, what can I use this first infusion of ECDG to start my process, to start my journey? So a couple of the tools you mentioned, the, the Communities to Clean Energy is a tool that's been developed to leverage our national labs and specifically the NREL supercomputer and essentially run simulations for cities as to what a transition to clean energy looks like, right? And we can run hundreds of different simulations and kind of emulate the current system and figure out what that journey looks like and give those communities further clarity into the types of technologies that we should be trying to boost up, the types of policies we should be implementing in order to catalyze that work, right? And how we can position ourselves for these grants that are coming down. At DOE, we are trying to make it easy for communities to understand how to go through this journey. And what I haven't mentioned yet is a new team that's being lifted up called the DOE Office of Community Engagement. This new team is basically being created to support communities through this navigation, almost like a concierge type service. We're gonna have engagement specialists that will be able to answer inquiries from communities to understand whether their project is eligible for the grant that they're going after, right? Things like that, which we get often. We're also gonna have a dedicated group of people that will provide more of a handheld deep assistance to some of our least resourced environmental justice and fossil transition communities. Those that are kind of way far behind and need more of a kind of whole of government approach to thinking about their pivot. This new team is really exciting. And I think as it lifts up later this summer, we're going to be rolling out various tools and services so that the communities can engage with DOE in an easier way, have a front door, so to speak, to work through and not have to figure out the complexity of what office to contact and the right person to get in touch with. Chris, we've talked about several different things that the administration is doing to address climate change. I'm sure you'd agree there's a lot more to be done. What else needs to happen? Well, I think that there is a major approach right now to interagency collaborations to really deliver on all of the resources that have come out and better coordinate amongst those resources. Here in SCEP, we are the home office for something called Energy Communities Interagency Working Group. This was a working group that was stood up really in the beginning of this administration to focus on coal plant, power plant, and fossil transition communities. Over the course of the last two years, the National Energy Technology Lab, NETL, has worked to identify the top 25 fossil energy communities and begun to essentially create this whole of government approach to supporting them. Right now we have what's called rapid response teams that are made up of EPA and HUD and DOT, DOE and other agencies, 11 agencies now working together on this working group that are beginning to deploy actual personnel and resources into certain communities and help them understand what this transition will look like. It may or may not be energy focused, which is why we need this whole of government approach. We might need to move from a coal mining community to one that's focused on battery supply chains or one that's focused on manufacturing a component of our heat pumps, right? Or one that's completely different from what I just mentioned. And so I'm really excited that this administration has really focused on 
collaboration and partnerships amongst our agencies so that we can better coordinate those resources and deliver for the American public. And energy communities is one of them. There's another group called the Rural Partnership Network that's led by USDA, another interagency effort that's focused on rural and remote communities. We have another focused on environmental justice communities called the Thriving Communities Network, another network of agency partners. And ultimately, these are different approaches to community engagement and to delivering clean energy and climate solutions in a holistic way. And I think that's needed, right? We have the money now. We have these agencies that are kind of reorganizing themselves. But what we haven't had is the connective tissues amongst our federal government partners so that we can best, most efficiently, effectively, and impactfully deliver these benefits to the American public and to the economy. And I think that's critical. I don't want to get into specific policies or other investments that we'll need to make, but I think that certainly is something that I'm encouraged about, that we're head-on participating in. And in fact, just yesterday was at the White House celebrating the two-year anniversary of the Energy Communities IWG and the progress that has been made to date. And encourage you all to check out energycommunities.gov to learn more about that effort and what we're doing to support that transition. Chris, it's clear from many examples in your past that you're really a builder. You've built a new group within the Department of Energy. You built the Orlando Sustainability Program. You built a nonprofit. You built a company. For listeners out there that might be starting their own sustainability efforts for their municipality, their company, their school, their community, what advice can you offer as they get started? First and foremost, there's no I in team, right? And I'm lucky enough to work with an incredible team here at DOE, Dr. Henry McCoy, who is our director, Michael Forster, our principal deputy director, Anna Maria Garcia, and others. In each one of the entities, whether it's my nonprofit work or work at the city, one of my, I guess, superpowers or core strengths is the ability of mobilizing teams around important missions. I think it's important for you as you're starting out and thinking about either a new organization or company, or even creating something in an existing institution, right? What we call intrapreneurship, which I think is much needed these days. As you're looking for that, we need to assemble a core team. And I often look for somebody who aligns with my passion and the work that we're doing. Secondly, I think that we need to start to build unconventional partners in this work. We need to get out of our echo chambers and bring in other groups to the table and be intentional about it. I think that we also need to be patient. We're on an urgent timeline, but this work takes moves at the speed of trust and collaboration. And ultimately, that takes time to build, whether it's working directly with our communities to deliver these to our BIPOC communities, our Black, Indigenous, and, and communities of color. We need to take the time to build those relationships. And I think that that's really critical. And thirdly, I'd keep your eye on what's coming next. We at DOE are investing in a significant amount of what we call these lift-off reports. These are new technologies on the horizon that we're beginning to track and map out what the roadmap looks like to commercialization. We know that long-duration energy storage is going to be critical. We know that direct air capture may need to be imperative at this point in time to meet our climate goals. We know that hydrogen is going to play a key role in this zero carbon future that we're moving towards. And so these are just three of several other liftoff reports that are coming down the pike that we want everybody to keep their eye on because it is new business opportunities as we move and pivot into this clean energy future. 
Chris, thank you so much for your time today and for all this incredible work that you're doing. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for inviting me and allowing me to share this story. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.